0: I was then turned to the book of Ruth. Uh, today we're going to start a new series from the book of Ruth, and I'm very excited about this short book, um, as I believe it's one of the best short stories ever written. Um, it has many incredible themes such as loyalty, uh, trust, commitment, providence of God, redemption, transformation, and it's all set amidst a backdrop of bitterness and darkness and famine. In an amazing unfolding of events, we see the love story unveiled not only between Boaz and Ruth, but also between God and his people he chose to redeem. The book of Ruth reminds all of us that God is always in control, even when we don't see it, even when we don't sense it. God is in control. But before I get started, let me give you a key phrase, which is kinsman redeemer. In the Hebrew language, the word redeem means to receive or buy back. Through the law of Moses, provision was made for a near or close kin to buy back land that a poor person may have had to sell. We see examples of this uh, as it was set up in Leviticus chapter 25. This kin, however, was typically someone of wealth who had the ability to purchase the land uh, and free the debt that had been incurred. And we see in the story of Ruth a picture of Jesus Christ who became our kinsman redeemer and for all of mankind who would place their faith and trust in him. It's a wonderful story. Uh, I think every one of us, as we go home this afternoon uh, throughout the week, read the story. You can read it very comfortably in about 20-25 minutes, the entire book. And it's a great story. So if you would this morning, uh, follow along as I begin reading in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1-5, through which is where we'll be this morning. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. There were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died... And she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orva, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Someone once said that hindsight is 20-20. If we could but see the result of the decisions we make before we have to make them, life would be grand, would it not? I mean, if we could just look back and say, well, if what we knew back then is what would be true today, I mean, life would just be perfect. But that's not always the case. The problem is, however, that even though we may have all the time in the world to make a decision, we often still choose incorrectly. And I believe such was the case with Elimelech. The consequences are often difficult to bear, and sometimes one mistake leads to another and yet still another at times. They made mistakes in how they chose to deal with the difficult situations they were facing. Soon one wrong mistake turned into another and still another. In Ruth chapter 1, we see at least three mistakes that were made. First of all, Elimelech and Naomi ran from their difficult situation. Secondly, Naomi made the mistake of trying to cover up her sin. And lastly, Naomi focused on the problems rather than the provider, and thus became very bitter. And today we're going to deal with just that first mistake that we learn of. But if I could say this, we need to get a grip on difficult situations. We need to get a grip on these. We pray, as I've said often, that we pray for a life of ease, don't we? Things that get difficult when you say, God, uh, you know, remove the struggle, remove the difficulty, remove the problem, remove the trial. And those are the very things that God is trying to use in our life to get our attention, to help us become more dependent on Him. We've been talking a lot the last several weeks in conversations about expectations. Who doesn't have expectations about every aspect of life? But when it doesn't happen the way we expect it to happen talking about life itself how do we respond to that do we look for an easy way out do we look for a better way to to do something or do we get on our knees and look to God we need to get a grip on these difficult situations but look at the scene here in Ruth chapter 1 there was no king but rather judges ruled the land well what is the significance of being there being no king Uh, Just for a moment, I want you to turn your Bibles back, just a few pages, to Judges chapter 17. Judges chapter 17 and verse 6. And let's answer the question of what is the uh, consequence of not having a king. Now you remember, they wanted a king. God said, I will be your king. But they didn't want that. They wanted somebody human. They wanted somebody that they could look to. And even that, they find out, did not work. And all the judges are on the scene. But he says in Judges chapter 17, and verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what? Whatever he wanted. I mean, there was nobody to say, well, you're going to do this, and you're going to do that, and you're not going to do that. They did whatever they wanted. In fact, it, the, the book of Judges ends with that same phrase. In uh, verse 25, the very last uh, verse of the book, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what he wanted. The significance of not having a king is that there was chaos in the land. Doesn't sound so much different than what is taking place in America today. Oh sure, there are rules. There's some regulations. There's some stipulations that all of us must abide by. But doesn't this seem like the road that we're traveling where everybody can have the right to do whatever they want? It doesn't matter that you're a minority. It doesn't matter that you're a majority. It doesn't matter anything. I have the right to do whatever I want. It's my body. It's my mind. It's my life. I can do whatever I want. And there's chaos as a result of it in the world that we live in today. But not only was there no king, there was a famine in the land. People were hungry. People were wanting to do whatever it took to put meals in front of them and their families. It was a difficult day in which they were living. Difficult situations that they were in the middle of. And here's the circumstance that we find ourselves in and what we learn about in the story is that when the difficult times come, when the famine is there, we want to deal with it however we know how to deal with it. And what Elimelech chose to do was to run because in his mind it was easier to pack up and go to Moab listen to this one more time I want to read through one more time get in your mind the setting of what is taking place in these first five verses so during the time of judges there was a famine in the land a man left Bethlehem and Judah which we'll talk about in just a moment with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab which we'll talk about in just a moment for a while so the man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem of J- in Judah. They entered into the land of Moab and settled there. And Naomi's husband Elimelech died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was Orpah, and the second woman was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons, her two children, and without her husband. So we see in this situation, it was not an easy situation to deal with. But why is it? I want us to answer this question just for a moment this morning. I want us to think about how we deal with difficult situations in our life. Why is it that people so often make the mistake of running from their problems rather than going to God with them? And That is a problem that goes with us for the rest of our lives. If we don't learn it, we're condemned to repeat it. If we don't get it right, we're going to keep facing these things. But I have to believe that there are at least five key words that came to my mind, five key reasons why people run from difficult situations rather than facing them. The first reason, the first word that comes to my mind is the word faith. People will often run from their difficult situations because of their lack of faith. And that's a really key ingredient in living life. We have to live by faith. God's Word makes it clear clear in 2 Corinthians. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. If we are facing a difficult situation and we don't have faith that God is in control, we are going to be simply going by sight and that's going to lead us astray. The bottom line is we need to face difficult situations with great faith. In fact, you remember the verse. In fact, I want you to turn here. We're going to be looking at a, a sequence of verses here just for a moment. The first one is in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a familiar verse. I'm sure you know it. Underline it if you haven't had it, don't have it underlined. It says, now without faith it is what? It's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please God. And here's the thing. It says, for the one who draws near to Him must believe that He exists and rewards those who seek Him. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God will give you whatever you want because that's what He does. It says that He will reward them that seek Him with the right attitude that believes that He is there and that He believes that He can handle the situation. But the bottom line is, He says, without faith you can't please God. You have to exercise faith as a child of God. So, here's the situation. Elimnach is facing this famine. He's not sure what to do, so he it's in his mind easier to pack up everything because he doesn't have faith in what God's ability is. And trust you and me, we'll do the same thing if we don't understand who God is. An understanding of who God is, and understanding that He is there, and understanding of the, our faith in Him will produce what God thinks is best for us, is important. God is not viewed as a solution or a source of help, but rather, more, or, uh, uh, rather for a limb, like, it's like, I've got to fix this problem that I'm in. Isn't that like most of us as men? Let's be honest. We find ourselves in situations and our first response is, how can I fix this? There's got to be something that I can do because I don't like the situation that I am in. And one of the easiest things to do is just kind of run away from it. Pretend it doesn't exist. If I wait out long enough, maybe it will go away. But it really comes down to a lack of faith. For Elimelech, God is not viewed as a solution, a source of hope. It's easier to run because I guess I'll have to fix this. In James, chapter one, another familiar verse, verse two says, "Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials." Now, who of us really says, "Whoo! Thank God, I have another trial to go through!" Wow! Bless God! Give me some more hardship. Yes. (laughs) No. We run from those things. It's our natural response to not enjoy it, to not like it. But God's Word reminds us we're to consider great joy. Because God, who in His sovereignty could have allowed those circumstances to evade our life, says, no, I'm going to let them rest on you because there's some things that I want to do in your life. I want to do some shaping. I want to do some molding. I want to do some chiseling. And I want you to learn to, to depend on me through it all. And I've chosen you to get to go through these things. He says, consider it great joy, my brothers. Why? Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I don't know about you, but I've got enough endurance sometimes. I don't want the testing. But God says, I have better plans for you than what you have for yourself. How do we respond to those things? Sometimes I don't like them. In Philippians chapter 4, another familiar verse. As we think through this process, chapter 4 and verse 19 says this. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Question. Elimelech is in the middle of this difficult, this difficult circumstance, these hard situations he's facing. There's a famine. Maybe there's a drought. Maybe it's dry. Maybe they, people don't have anything. But what does God's Word say? My God shall supply. Are we one to trust God? From God's perspective, I believe, Elimlich's decision was a major mistake. And Elimelech believed that it was better for him to pack up everything move to Moab rather than to get on his knees and beg God for a miracle. But Moab was not the place. Elimech's decision was a major mistake for a couple of reasons. Moab, first of all, was a heathen, idolatrous land that worshipped false gods. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then what's the next phrase? and lean not on your own understanding. How often have we been in situations similar to Limelech? where according to what I know and what I think I believe and what I think is best, I need to go this way. And God's Word reminds us, don't lean on your own understanding. It will lead you the wrong direction. Walk by faith, not by sight. You'll go the wrong way by what you can see. Trust me. Moab was a heathen idolatrous land that worshiped false gods. And can I just say this? Secondly, Moab was the enemy of God. How do I know that? I'm glad you asked. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23 in verse 3, listen to, just listen to what God thought of Moab. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the Lord's assembly. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, may, even, may ever enter into the Lord's assembly. I, I would just kind of guess it out loud here, but I think God had a healthy disdain for the Moabites. He took it pretty seriously. He goes, I don't even want to be around them. I don't want them in my assembly. I don't even care if it's their tenth generation. I don't want anything to do with them. And this was the very place that Elimelech packed up and ran to. The Ammonites and the Moabites were the descendants of Lot that was a result of an act of incest between Lot and his two daughters. The sons that were born due to Lot's drunken state became the fathers of the nations of Ammon and Moab. And we see that story unfold in Genesis chapter 19 beginning with verse 30. We'll not turn there. But these nations were enemies of God. And Elimelech made a choice to reside with and depend on God's enemies rather than God Himself when they were going through the difficult time. It's an amazing thing to consider. Running to the enemy versus resting in God and trusting Him. They were the enemies. But also, number two, the very name Bethlehem means house of bread. The name Judah is often translated praise. And finally, Ephraim means fruitful. This is what land Elimelech was running from. As Elimelech viewed this fruitful house of bread, he could only see famine and hopelessness. And here's the thing. Ephrathah meant praise. No praise was in Elimelech's mouth. And this is the natural result of living by sight rather than by faith. You see, we don't naturally get up in the morning and find out some bad news and say, Oh, praise God! Let me just sing praise to the Lord we don't do that but we ought to we ought to be rejoicing because even in our difficult trials even in amidst our difficult situations god is still god do we get that god has not changed god doesn't move he's still god always will be And His attributes don't change from one day to the next based on how I feel or what I perceive Him to be like. He's God. But when my mind is on the problem, there's not going to be any praise in my mouth. But here's the deal. If I can learn to take that problem and turn it into a project that will bring praise to God, there will be praise in my mouth. It's my perception of the project, the problem. It's either a big problem or it's a project for God to work in. It's my attitude. It's my view of what God is trying to do in my life. But running away seemed like the best solution to Elimelech's difficult situation. Sometimes we have the same mindset as Elimelech. But you and I have all been there. Things look bleak. We're not sure how... Things are going to work out. We can't see how things are going to come together, et cetera, et cetera. How do we handle it? Do we have faith to believe that God is in control? There was not only a faith issue, but there was also a fear issue. People often run from their difficult situations out of fear. What will happen if I tell the truth? What will happen if I admit what I've done? What will happen if I tell what I saw? What if the consequences are too costly? And what if I think the consequences aren't fair? Or what if I think the consequences aren't convenient? I'm afraid. And because I'm afraid, I don't want to do what I think is right. Or what I know to be right. Fear will cripple us. And fear will keep us from being obedient to God. What will happen if I go to the mission field? Or into an area of ministry? I mean, is God going to choose to send me to Africa or Timbuktu and Iceland and all these faraway places? He might. But it's safer to be in the will of God than it is to be running from it. These things are just too difficult. Fear. What if I stay in this famine a little bit longer? I guess we'll never know if we don't stay there. What if I do run? What am I running to? There's fear there too. But fear will often keep us from dealing with difficult situations in a biblical manner. Let me give you a good piece of advice. It comes from the Bible. 1 John 4, verse 4. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. And God's Word also reminds us that He has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. We have the ability to face what God puts in front of us. Can you imagine being Moses just for a moment? And Moses can be, you know, shared in so many of these passages. But you can you imagine Moses standing before the king, the Pharaoh, and saying, I want, my, I want you to let God's people go. Who do you think you are? Guards, kill him. Just get done with it. I'm sure there was fear. But obedience trumps fear. Obedience always trumps fear. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If I'm walking in obedience, knowing that I'm following what God has asked me to do, I should have no fear. Because God's in control. Not only that, Failure, number three. Failure, people will often let failures of the past hinder their progress for the future. People will often let a defeatist attitude permeate their mind. Oh, I can't do it. I tried before it didn't work. I tried before I failed. I just can't do this. Man. How often? We we wouldn't have had the sixteenth president of the United States if it weren't for you know persistence. Abraham Lincoln failed and, failed and failed and failed and failed and failed, and then all of a sudden he won. Are you going to give up? Are you going to let past failures? And can I just say this? Some of you have had some past failures, and it dictates how you rule your home, your families. Well, I, I had this situation in my past, so I can't really get on my kids when they go through it. Yes, you can. Past failures doesn't give a license for the next generation to continue it on. My Sunday school teacher for 20 years and still is there today, he says, smart is he who learns from his own mistakes, but brilliant is he who learns from the mistakes of others, so you don't have to face them yourself. Past failures does not give a license to the next generation to continue it on. That doesn't mean you can't stop them. Just because you did drugs doesn't give your kids a license to do drugs. Just because kid you did some things that weren't smart doesn't mean that your kids can have the freedom to do things that aren't smart. God has called you above that and beyond that. People will let past mistakes be the basis for not going forward. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a criminal record. Um, maybe it's being fired from a job. Maybe it's a financial disaster. You know what my Bible says? All things work together for good to who? To them that love God. To them that are called according to His purpose. Do I love God enough to trust Him with my life? That He's going to take these mistakes that I've made and turn them into something to which I can praise Him for later. It's my choice. It's my perspective. Either God's a great God that can work or He's not. Talk about Moses... I can't go back. I killed somebody. Read the story in Exodus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. I, I, I can't do that. I killed somebody in the desert. I mean, I, 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 past failure. Look what God did through him. And I'm not advocating what he did as right. I'm saying God can take the circumstances of past failures and help you move beyond them. But not only... Faith, not only fear, not only failure, but sometimes even our focus. Number four. People will often be focused on the problem rather than on God, who allowed the problem to exist. Did you hear that? God allowed the problem. Because either we believe that God is sovereign, that He's great and powerful, or He's not. There's no middle ground. Either you do or you don't. you agree with that? Either He's great or He's not. Period. Nothing in the middle. So if he's great, and we know he is, and he's powerful, and we know he is, God could have allowed every or any difficult trial circumstances to not have entered our life. Right? But sometimes he lets them in. So where's my focus? Think about this. In Numbers chapter 13, we see an incredible story. I love this story. I want you to go out and check out this land that I am what? What's the word? Giving you. I mean, was the outcome not already predetermined? Seriously. He says, go check out this land I'm giving to you. I mean, the outcome was already done. I mean, the land is yours. Go check it out. Twelve spies go in there. You know the song, Ten Were Bad, Two Were Good? I mean, they went in there, they checked it all out. Man, the grapes. I mean, you see those grapes that have come in the last couple of Sunday mornings? They're monsters, and they Can't hold a candle, these things, baby. Grapes and clusters so huge, they had to put them on a staff between two people. And, and it's like a land that flowed with milk and honey. I mean, it was, this, this land is incredible. But what was their focus? There's walled cities, and there are giants in the land. Wait, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa! whoa. Back up here. Rewind. Er, back. You know, go backwards. Go check out this land that I am giving you. But where was their focus on the walls and the giants? They're too many. They're too big. They're too strong. Where's your focus? Is it on the problem? or is on this project of getting this land that God's given us. Sometimes we'll be focused on the problem rather than on the project. And then one more, number five. People will often let frustration weaken their resolve to handle difficult situations with patience and steadfastness. Frustration. I can imagine, because rather than just boom, Elimelech over and over again. I would imagine that if you and I were in those sandals, we would probably have contemplated the same decision. Things are hard here and I'm frustrated. It doesn't seem like there's any help this way and this way, and well, it looks like maybe we can go over there. Frustration. Rather than patience and steadfastness. Frustrated. You ever been frustrated in the difficult situations? You know, let me just tell you. I get frustrated if you don't know me very well you once in a while. But one of my biggest frustrations is stinking diabetes. I hate it. You know why? Because it's an inconvenience to me. It frustrates me. You know why it's an inconvenience? Because it takes time to put an insulin pump on. It takes time to test my sugar. It takes time to go to the gym and work out. I don't want to deal with all that junk. I want to get up in the morning, put my shoes on, and go out the door and get going. Wait a minute. So I go to the doctor and say, you're not testing enough. Really? News alert. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know how long it takes to go into the other room, grab the tester, prick myself and do this, and then put it away? Yeah, probably a minute that I really have, but I don't want to take it. It frustrates me. I don't like doing the menial things. I'm a big picture guy, if you haven't figured that out yet. I don't like being frustrated, because it's against what pleases me. I'm selfish. Like you. Thank you, Mike. But... We'll often let frustrations of the difficulties keep us from moving forward where God wants us to go. Remember Saul, confronted by Samuel? Oh, hey, you know, the people made me do it. I mean, the people frustrated me, and the people did this, and the people... No, let's take responsibility for what we do. This passage, as we start out this book... We are going to realize, if we haven't already, that God is in control. And here's an opportunity where a like could have because he was in a fruitful land of bread. Because he was in a place where it meant praise. He could have waited out and seen God do something. But God shows us through His Word that that move was obviously a mistake. It was a sinful move in his life. Especially to go out and hang out with the Moabites. One wrong decision led to another wrong decision, leads to oftentimes another wrong decision. You know, back up just for a moment. You know what one of the problem was problems was that for the children of Israel who lived in Egypt? They began to serve the gods of Egypt. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see that when even as God brought them out of the land of Egypt, after he even brought them out of Pharaoh's bondage, what did they bring with them? The idols and the, the, uh, the gods of Egypt. You can take them out of the land, but the idols went with them. And the problem with Elimelech moving to Moab is that ultimately those gods would become the gods of his children. What does that teach us, folks? The next generation is going to learn from us. What are we teaching them? What are we teaching them? You see, if we run from difficult situations, guess what our children may have a tendency to do? Run from difficult situations. You see, if we don't have faith to trust God, why should our kids have faith to trust God? You know, if we let, you know, the, the circumstances of the past and, you know, fear cripple us, why, why, why wouldn't our kids have that same fear? If we let past failures, why wouldn't our kids let, past failures. If we don't have a right focus, why would we expect our kids to have a right focus? If we get frustrated, why would not we expect them to get frustrated? We have got to break a cycle and say, God, you're in control. You're in control. Alemlech thought that he could, by his own effort, manipulate the difficult situation he was in by packing up and moving to Moab. In doing so, he lost his life the lives of his two children were lost. But he thought he could do a better job of taking care of things than God could. And truly, the real issue was a lack of faith and trust in God to care for their needs. As we get into this, we're going to realize that this short story unpacks a ton. But, I wanna, but one of the things I want us to walk away with is that God is in control, despite the difficulties. Will you believe that? Will you trust God through them?